Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be here with you this morning, just to be able to worship with you and open up God's Word. Such a privilege. If I haven't uh, met you before, if I don't have that privilege, my name is Ben. I'm the community pastor here. And you know, when I was a kid, I hate to admit it, but I wasn't the toughest, most courageous little kid. I used to get homesick a lot. So my brother, he was a much like more willing to go and have sleepovers at children's houses and stuff like that. But I used to get homesick. Sometime throughout the day, uh, we'd be having fun. And at some point, this, this sick feeling right in the pit of my stomach would settle in. I felt sick. I just felt like this discomfort and this longing for home, this longing to go home. And no matter how many Nintendo 64 games they threw in front of me, I just couldn't get away from that feeling. So the friend's mom or my auntie would have to call up my mom and say, yeah, uh, you need to come pick him up. And she'd have to come all the way back and pick me up and take me home. I had this longing for home. I don't know if you can relate to that. Maybe you're a bit more courageous than me as a kid, or perhaps you have a more profound sense of homesickness in your life. Maybe... You've uh, left the country of your birth, maybe for reasons that you, you had to leave, and, and you have this homesickness. You miss that place. I actually believe all of us have a homesickness in our hearts. And the reason I say that is because the Bible says that we were created for Eden. We were created to be at home in this earth, uncorrupted, in the fullness of God's presence. And so when we rub up with realities that aren't Eden, when we rub up with suffering and difficulty and relational brokenness and disease, we get this inner sense that we, this desire, this longing, this wish for things to be made right, for suffering to end, for peace to be restored. And I really believe that that is a longing for home. That is a longing for Eden. That is a longing to be in God's presence in a renewed world without sickness and suffering and death. We all have a sense of homesickness as people. And the reason I'm talking about this is because right now we're in the middle of a series called The Bible, a story that makes sense of life. We're looking at how the Bible fits together and how it makes sense of our lives, the big picture of the Bible. And today we come to the sixth movement in the biblical storyline. We've looked at creation, fall, promise, exodus, kingdom, and now today, exile, our longing for home. And so we're going to see in this story of exile how our longings for home kind of line up with some of the longings of the characters in the story. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But right now, we're going to just recap and summarize over 400 years of history really quickly, and then we're going to ask, what lessons can we take away from this? So where did we finish up last week with Adam? Well, as we looked at the kingdom, we looked and we ended in this place where we saw that God's people were Israel, living in God's land, the land of Israel, under God's rule and blessing, in this golden age of their history under Kings David and Solomon. But we saw that even great David himself ended up becoming like the other kings. He took from the people. He took Bathsheba. He took the the life of Uriah 
And eventually these, these seeds of discord were sown into the kingdom and they sprouted and became a full, complete division in the kingdom. And the kingdom split in two. This is a photo on the screen right now of how the kingdom split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel for themselves. The southern kingdom took on the name Judah. All of the 20, all of the 20 kings in the northern kingdom, the Bible says, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Some of the southern kings did do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but most of them didn't. And so it's no surprise that the northern kingdom was judged more quickly The Assyrians, who were the superpower in the region at that time, came in and destroyed the northern kingdom Israel and took them off into captivity, and they never fully recovered. The southern kingdom, though, they lasted a little bit longer until the Babylonians became the superpower in the scene. They kicked out the Assyrians, Babylon was in charge, and Jerusalem and Judah was one of their vassal states. They would have paid tribute to Babylon and that sort of thing. But they rebelled a few times in the Babylonians, tried to create local alliances. And so the Babylonians came in. They started destroying their country. They put Jerusalem to siege. And it was over a year and a half that Jerusalem was under siege. And the Bible says the famine was so severe that there was nothing left to eat. People were starving. The Babylonians breached the walls, streamed into the city, slaughtering women and children. And the army tried to flee, but the Babylonians caught up with the army and the king killed them, took the king captive. And what they did with the king is they took him, they sentenced him, they killed his sons in front of his eyes, and they gouged his eyes out, so it'd be the last thing that he saw. And they put chains on him, and they took him along with the other captives all the way back to Babylon. This is horrific, horrible. The Babylonians were a brutal people, but the Bible actually makes clear that this wasn't just the act of an oppressive empire. This was the judgment of God finally falling on Israel's head after years and years and years and years of rebelling and rejecting God. And so the route they took back to Babylon, put that up on the screen now, as you can see there, on the left side just there is where Jerusalem and Judea is. And so they traveled back to Babylon. Now, the reason I want to show you this is because in the third week of our series, we talked about promise. We talked about Abraham. Abraham was originally a pagan man from this area. And when God called him to the promised land, he took the same route down to the promised land. And so now it's as if the blessings of God are being reversed through their disobedience. They're heading back through the same route, back to where their people originally came from. And while in Babylon, the people have to learn how to worship God without a temple. They have to learn how to keep their identity in a hostile culture, not to lose it. They spent 70 years in Babylon. And I wish we could get a bit more deeply into that today, but we just don't have enough time. But some of the lessons that we learn from people like Daniel and people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are how we are to live in a hostile culture. I know many people can feel that In Australia, it's a post-Christian culture now. It's getting more hostile to Christianity. It's not just a benign thing anymore. Christianity is sometimes seen as harmful. And so there are important lessons we can learn from people like Daniel about how to live in a culture like that. What did Daniel do? Well, he had spiritual disciplines. He prayed three times a day. They put all of their allegiance to God, but they didn't hate on the culture. 
They didn't try and undermine the culture. They actually sought the prosperity of the culture. They sought to bless their city. Jeremiah 29, it says that God actually explicitly commands them to seek the good of Babylon, to seek the good of the city, because in its prosperity, they would find their prosperity. So there's some really interesting lessons for us in a post-Christian world in Australia. And after 70 years, the judgment is ended, as God promised. He said 70 years, and they're taken out of exile, and they return back to the land. Humanly speaking, what happened is Persia came to reign. They kicked out the Babylonians, and they had different policies with the peoples in their empire. They were the nice guys, in a sense. They sent the peoples back to their homes and let them worship their own gods. And so Persia allowed the Jewish exiles to head back to Jerusalem, even gave them resources to help them rebuild. And God was with them. And they had leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah. Might, you know, hit some bells for you. What's the phrase? Ring a bell for you. There we go. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're books in the Bible. So those are the leaders that were in that time. And, and under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and people like Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the walls around the Jerusalem, and they renewed their covenant relationship with God. So there were some amazing things that happened, and God was with them. But there was a sense that it was a real a shadow of what it once was. The temple itself was a shell of what it once was amongst the reigns of Solomon. And so we see things like this. In Ezra, it says this, Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. So they were praising God, wow, look at what he's done. But then the older people who knew what the old temple was like wept because it was such a a pitiful resemblance of what they once had. So by the close of the Old Testament, they're back in the land. God has been fulfilling some of his promises, but so many of his promises remain unfulfilled. They're, They're home, geographically speaking, but they're not really home in the presence of God with his presence filling the temple and living under his blessing. So by the close of the Old Testament, just to wrap it up, God's people is this tiny remnant people living in God's land, back in the, in the land with Jerusalem and partially sort of experiencing God's rule and blessing. So what can we learn from this story? Well, there are two lessons I'd like us to focus on. And the first comes under this heading, the message of exile. Let's take a look at the message of exile. And in this section, we're going to look at the message of the prophets during the period we just covered. And the prophets are all those books at the end of the Old Testament, in the middle of your Bible, with the funny names like Isaiah and Obadiah and Malachi, Zechariah. Those are the prophets. And here's a helpful chart I found online that shows when the prophetic books were written. So this is basically a chronological order of the Bible. And so you see here where the arches, that's the 70 years of exile. Ezra and Nehemiah come after that, the historical books. Up here, the purple books are all the prophets, all the prophetic books. Some of them are written to the northern kingdom. Some are written to the southern kingdom. Some are written to foreign nations. Some are written during the captivity, like Ezekiel. And some were written after the exile. Those are the prophets. And so we're going to look at their message. What was their message during exile? Well, their message is pretty simple. 
It was a message of judgment and a message of hope. It was a message of judgment and hope. They spoke of God's terrifying judgment against his people for breaking their covenant with with him. But the prophets also spoke of a hope that would come after judgment, a hope so unimaginably good that human language is stretched into metaphors and symbols to try and communicate the reality of it. The best way to think about the prophets is as covenant advocates. Okay, so maybe you can remember that word covenant. Moses and Mount Sinai, they had a covenant with God and had all these stipulations about, here's how we're going to relate to each other. And so they they were advocating for this covenant. They were there to, to call the people back from evil and from rejecting God and call them back to be faithful to their covenant God. And the way they did this was as foretellers and foretellers. As foretellers, they spoke into the present situation. So God says this about what's happening right now. And there were foretellers, speaking of the future, talking about the judgment that would come if they didn't repent, talking about the beauty that would come after that, despite whatever they were doing now, God was just graciously promising, here's some wonderful things that are going to happen, even though you're rebellious. They were foretellers and foretellers. They were covenant advocates. The message of exile was one of judgment and hope. Let's just take a look at that first part of the message for a moment, the message of judgment. Adam read Isaiah 1 for us earlier. And in that reading, Isaiah explained how devastating the exile would be. In fact, in verse 7, the exile is so certain that it talks about the future as if it's already happening. Let me read it again for you, Isaiah 1 verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Now, that is a terrifying judgment. That's not, uh, Ben, you're not going to be able to eat chocolate for the next month, sort of discipline. This is terrifying. This isn't a slap on the wrist. This is a fall of a kingdom. The burning of cities, the precursor to exile. And what I want to ask us this morning is whether we, can, whether we believe in a God who would allow that. Do we believe in a God who would allow that? Because it's confronting. And this is one of the reasons it's important for us to read the prophets today because they correct our tendency to domesticate God, to create him in our image after our likeness. One of the highest values of our age is tolerance. It's not easy for us to hear about judgment. And I'm a child of this era as well, so God's judgment is at times hard to stomach for me, hard to understand. But if we settle for parts of God, what do we end up with? We don't end up with God anymore. We end up with a God of our own creation, a God of our own imagination. We lose God. We lose the one who can save us. And so we need to know the God of the Bible. The judgment messages of the prophets reveal to us more about God. And I would argue that they reveal to us another side of God's love. You might be thinking, huh? God's love is revealed through his judgment? Well, yes. Let me explain. God doesn't have a split personality. He never changes And when he judges, he doesn't cease to be loving and good. 
And this helps us understand the judgment we just read in Isaiah. It's actually driven by his character still. He's still the same God. It's driven by his love, his mercy, his goodness, his compassion. Our problem is that we just can't fathom how good God actually is, how pure he actually is. He is so good that he cannot and will not tolerate evil and rebellion forever. When he revealed himself to Moses, he says, I'm slow to anger. So he gave them hundreds and hundreds of years of rebellion before he actually went, judgment has come. But he's not afraid to judge. And it's in this aspect of God's character, his unyielding goodness, that we both tremble and rejoice. We tremble because we know we are not innocent. We will not get away with anything. God sees it all. But we rejoice because we know that God is the arch enemy of evil. He will destroy evil. He will vanquish it. He will get rid of it once and forever. All sorrow and sickness and suffering will flee. So this truth causes us to tremble and rejoice. Isaiah shows us that God is committed to purifying his people. And it's in this judgment we see him preparing to put them through the furnace, as it were, to melt away every impurity. I don't know if you realize this, but God is more dedicated to your righteousness and your wholeness than you are. And sometimes the strength of his commitment is scary. I know it's scary when I know I'm not walking with God. It's scary. You think, God, please just give me mercy, but I I don't really want to give up the sin in my life. Well, he's too good to allow me to do that. He's too good. He cares too much about my righteousness. He cares too much about purifying me that he will not allow me to go on like that. He will discipline me for my ultimate good. He's a father in that way. He loves us that strongly. This is how the book of Hebrews speaks about it. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. God's discipline and judgment flow out of not his hate or something like that, which isn't in him, but out of his unyielding goodness and love. The message of exile is a message of judgment, but it's also a message of hope. Despite generation after generation of rejection of God and rebellion against him, God just couldn't give up on his people. And so even before they went through exile, he said things like this, Isaiah 66, For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her. He's speaking about Jerusalem, the city. I'll extend peace to Jerusalem like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse Israel and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. So the city that will be burned with fire will one day receive the wealth of nations. Isaiah gives this message of dazzling hope and it's surprising. I mean, don't you expect when you see him judge them and say, I'm going to let the Babylonians have their way with you, you you think, if you were there, you'd think he's done. He's done with these people. 
But he wasn't. He wasn't done with them. And I wonder if you've ever assumed the same thing. Maybe you've really sensed God's, been, God's disciplined you and it's been hard to go through. And maybe you think, this is, this is evidence that he's done with me rather than evidence of his love for me. Or maybe you're just going through suffering and we don't know why that always happens. But maybe you think God's far, God's distant. Well, listen to the message of the prophets. The prophets show us that God never ceases to be loving. He never ceases to be committed to his people's good. He never ceases to be compassionate, even when he disciplines his children, even when he lets them go through hard times. In the midst of his discipline, God mixes in all these messages of hope among the prophets. And they're startling. God was not willing to give up on sinners. His judgment was not his abandonment of his people. It was his purification of his people. And like a father, he doesn't enjoy the suffering of his children. There are times we read where it's just like it's hurting God to see them go through this. But he's too good to let evil remain in their lives. And this is why I've found the Reformed Puritans really helpful. So the Reformed Puritans, these are guys, the English guys from like a few hundred years ago, amazing theologians. And they used to make this distinction between God's judgment and mercy. They would say that God's mercy is natural to him, but they would say God's judgment is his strange work. It's his strange work. It's not something he delights in. He'd much prefer to lavish blessing and comfort on his people, but he's strong enough to do it if it's for his people's good. Lamentations 3 talks about this. Lamentations is a book that the prophet Jeremiah wrote during the exile. It's full of all these bitter poems about their suffering. But right in the center of the book, he writes this. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. It's not, not it's not his pleasure to do that. The ESV translates it more literally. The Hebrew, it says something like, he does not afflict from his heart. Does it come right out of the core of who he is? God loves to comfort, but he's not afraid to judge. This is what we learn about God in the message of exile. God's prophets advocated for God's judgment, for, for God's covenant. They warned of judgment and promised hope for God's people. And they did this all throughout the exile period and even coming out of the exile when they returned to the land. And as I retold the story earlier, we saw that even after returning to the land, there was still this longing among the pe people. They had returned home geographically, but it didn't feel like home. They weren't home with God properly. And this brings us to our second lesson, the longing of exile. The longing of exile. In the time of Moses, God's presence filled the tabernacle. In the time of Solomon, God's presence filled the temple. But after the exile, when the temple was rebuilt, God's presence didn't fill it. Something was still missing. They weren't really really experiencing the fullness of all the promises of God yet. They weren't really completely restored. They hadn't been restored to Eden and its ideal. 
So a longing remained. They still longed for the kind of home Isaiah promised where Jerusalem would be more glorious than ever before with the wealth of nations streaming into it. Spiritually speaking, they were still exiles. They were still in exile from God. And so when the New Testament opens up 400 years later, it assumes that Israel is still in exile. It's assumed that exile hasn't really ended. Now, though, they were living under a different pagan empire, Rome. So geographically, they were home, but spiritually, they were exiled. And this longing for home wasn't just something that they have, but it's entrenched in every human heart because our home is in God's presence, in God's goodness. Not in his presence in a silly, cartoonish kind of way with clouds and harps, but in this world, with all of its beauty and grandeur, free from the corruption of sin and evil and suffering in the good presence of God. You know, I believe if we look around our nation, I believe this, this homesickness, this longing for home haunts us. News.com.au reported this year that Bunnings is Australia's favorite store for the second year running. Now, I'm not going to have a dig at you if you go to Bunnings. My two and a half year old is already part of his vocabulary because I love Bunnings. But in my mind, Bunnings is like one of Australia's largest churches. Worshippers enter the parking lot. They get out and they see the sausage sizzle, the greetings. They've got the community there. And as they enter the store, they've got this pantheon of gods to choose from, this array, this selection of gods. You've got gods who can reduce the chaos in your home and bring order. You've got gods who can bring beauty to your home, who can restore Eden and make it like a paradise. Bunnings is, I believe, one of Australia's top stores, not just because they run so well, but because they tap into a longing in our hearts, a longing for a perfect home, the longing for a home where there's order and peace and beauty. But, you know, Bunnings hasn't solved it. And thank God for them because they're just getting busier and profits are still going up. They don't want to solve it. Our homes, our physical homes, can't fill that deep longing for our real home in our hearts, that spiritual home where everything is at peace, where beauty is restored, and we're at home with God. But, you know, the good news for spiritually exiled Israel and for every human being who realizes they are spiritually exiled is that God offers to take us home. Isaiah speaks of this hope in chapter 11 of his book. In chapter 11, it says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So earlier he said that Israel is like a tree, in judgment, it's going to be felled. It's going to be reduced to a stump. That's all that's going to be left. But then there's a little shoot that's going to come out. And it's from the stump of Jesse. So the shoot, you're thinking Jesse was David's father, King David. So there's something that's going to come from Jesse or David's line, someone. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness. He will judge the needy, which means he'll give justice to the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. 
So Isaiah says, they're looking for someone from the line of Jesse and David who will bring an end to exile, who will bring us home. And this is why the New Testament opens up with this incredible claim about Jesus' lineage. It says, Matthew 1.17, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah, to Jesus. So Matthew's claim is that Jesus is that son of David. Jesus is the end of exile. 14 generations from exile to the Messiah who will end the exile. Jesus is the one who can bring us home. He is like a new purified Israel who arises from the wreckage of judgment and reconstitutes God's people around himself. So in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Jesus is presented like Israel. So in Matthew chapter 2, when he was young, he came out of Egypt, it says. Out of Egypt I called my son, it quotes. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus crosses the Jordan, like, like Israel crossed the Jordan after they escaped Egypt. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, except he didn't rebel like Israel did in their 40 years in the wilderness. In Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus gets up on the mountain like a new Moses and gives his new law in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is presented like a new Israel. He's fulfilling the vocation of God's people that they failed in. And he's reconstituting the people of God around himself. And in fact, he claimed to be God's temple, God's presence on earth. So when you come into contact with Jesus, you come into contact with God. You experience that that home that you long for. And we receive a certain hope through Jesus that God's presence will be with us in the Holy Spirit. That's why we celebrate this Pentecost Sunday, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Until one day, this groaning earth is renewed and restored and redeemed from its corruption. And we'll feel at home like never before. But you might be thinking, well, what about our rebellion? You know, in our humble moments, we might be willing to admit that we're not that unlike Israel. We rebel against God. We still get it wrong. We still do the wrong thing. Won't we sort of be stuck in a cycle of judgment and hope, judgment and hope? Well, the thing is, Jesus came to break the cycle. In his goodness, he will not tolerate evil. He will judge it. In his mercy, he wants to bless his people. He wants to bring them home. So how did he solve that? Well, this time when Jesus visited his people, he didn't send a pagan empire to release, release their brutality upon them. Instead, he let the pagan empire unleash its brutality on him. Jesus let himself be taken captive by the Romans. Beaten, mocked, spat on crowned with thorns, taken to Golgotha, crucified, hung, naked, shamed. God incarnate, let the justice of God be done to him so the mercy of God might flow freely to people who put their trust in Jesus. And so right from the beginning of the gospel, we see that Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness He's fulfilling the vocation that Israel failed in. And he comes and dies the death they should have died. He lets the pagan nation take him captive and put him to death so that anyone who puts their trust and faith in Jesus can be secure, 
can know that they are accepted forever. Can know that even when they're going through suffering, even when they're being disciplined by God, they are not being abandoned by God. They are secure in Christ. So let me ask you today, is your faith, is your trust in Jesus, he can bring you home to the presence of God by filling you with his spirit now and leading you to the new creation when you will experience it in all of its fullness one day. He isn't asking you to be righteous enough. He isn't asking you to be good enough. He's just asking you to trust him. He's just asking you to believe that he's done it for you. And it's in his deepest heart to extend mercy and grace and love to every rebel who comes to him. Jesus can bring you home to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Lord, you're surprising sometimes. We couldn't have made you up. But we, are thank, we thank you that you are far better than any God of our imagination. We thank you that you set your love on us. We thank you that in your great mercy, you went to such excruciating lengths to secure the deliverance and the salvation of your people. Well, we just give you praise here this morning. Jesus, we can hardly fathom the kind of love that propelled you to the cross, that made you choose the cross for us. Lord, help us just to unleash, to, to release our burdens to you today, whether we're feeling condemned, whether we're feeling not good enough, whether we're suffering. Help us to place those burdens before the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ at the cross, and to receive the freedom that you give. And we ask that you pour your spirit out on us afresh this Pentecost Sunday, that we might experience that measure of home now in your presence, God, until one day you bring us really home into the new creation in the fullness of your presence. We look forward to that day. We love you and we pray this as your people in the name of King Jesus. Amen.